1: This week, we're resharing one of our favorite episodes of the Single Tracks podcast. If you've already heard this one, don't worry because next week we'll be back with an all new show. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks podcast. My name is Jeff, and today I'm going to be talking with James Wilson. So, James has been helping mountain bikers all around the world get strong and fit since 2005 through his online training programs and his podcast. He's also designed his own flat mountain biking pedal called the Catalyst, which helps riders improve both power and comfort on the bike. Thanks for joining us, James.
0: Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Glad to be here.
1: So how did you get started as a strength trainer? Did you have a background in that or did you get your start mountain biking?
0: I actually, I started, I think, working out like a lot of dudes in high school because I wanted to put on some muscle so girls would look at me <laughs> and, uh, you know, just that kind of, uh, led to, uh, I, I started running track and then I got introduced to using strength training for improving performance as well. And it really just interested me in how you could kind of, uh, you know, level up your character, uh, you know, to use a video game reference, to, uh, so to speak, <laughs> through smart training and and improve your performance. So uh, I just, it was one of those things that I just, you know, really got into and studied more and eventually got certified as a personal trainer and a strength coach. And uh, it was actually working for a company that certified personal trainers that I got my first mountain bike in, and I actually got it to commute to work and really wasn't interested in mountain biking as much as I thought that, you know, road, bikes looked a little weeny to be honest and I was looking for a bike to ride to work and I was like man that looks kind of like a BMX bike I remember riding something like that uh when I was a kid so I uh this was actually in Santa Barbara which I didn't know at the time has some amazing riding and eventually I got bored one weekend and took my bike up uh up and down a fire road actually and not even a trail mm-hmm. and I was hooked I was like oh man this is awesome this is the best thing ever you know, you get like the, the, the runner's high, the endurance side of it from, from the climbs and, and stuff. And then you get the adrenaline rush of an action sport mm-hmm. and it's a really, really unique sport and unique, uh, um, experience. And so, uh, yeah, I was just in love from that first ride. And so having a little bit of a background as a strength coach and and also through my experience in track, I knew that if I want to improve my performance that doing you know strength training was going to be one of the the best ways to do that so yeah I started to look into what was out there at the time and this is back in you know I think I got my first mountain bike in 2000 so there really wasn't much of anything at all as far as mountain bike specific strength training and what there was I quickly recognized as like you know bodybuilding nonsense like Three sets of ten on the leg press, leg curl, and and leg extension. Mm-hmm. It's like that's not how athletes train. At. I knew enough to know that, so I started applying what I knew from you know my experience in, in working with track and as a strength coach to my own training, and then eventually to some of the other guys that I was riding with, and we were seeing results. And <clears throat> excuse me, I eventually decided to put up a website and see if there were other riders who were interested in, in what I was doing. And, uh, yeah, that was back in 2005. So fast forward to today and, and it seems like a few other people have been interested in, in what I, you know, kind of my mission of helping riders through good strength and conditioning stuff. But, uh, that's kind of how, uh, MTV strength training systems and all that came to be.
1: Yeah. That's cool. So, I mean, how is strength training different from say just general like aerobic or fitness training? Is there, is, do you separate the two or they kind of go hand in hand?
0: Oh, you know, I, in my mind they go hand in hand. I mean the, I guess like you're The big difference is a lot of times for like bodybuilding and your uh, kind of more general fitness training, you'll train by anatomy, you know, like you'll train your biceps and you'll train your chest and you'll train your hamstrings. And that's not necessarily how the human body is set up. You know, it it uses muscles to create movements. And so you don't want to train muscles. You want to train those movements. And so there, in my opinion, I think everybody should train that way, but that's one of the biggest differences between, you know, say bodybuilding and and what you'll see with some of the general fitness training and more of how an athlete would, uh, would want to work. And also, you know, the, the sets and rep ranges are going to be a little bit different. You know, you're, you're looking to, in a lot of cases, you're looking to try to build muscle mm-hmm. as part of a, a general fitness or bodybuilding type program. And for mountain bikers, while I definitely think adding some muscle is a, is a good idea because that's your, your best armor that you can have, there is a point where you're trying to maximize your strength to weight ratio. And so you're trying to add strength and power without necessarily adding more weight mm-hmm. and or minimizing the weight gain, I guess I should say. Yeah. And so there, there are specific ways to train for for that as well. So, you know, there's, there's definitely some considerations that uh, someone who's training to improve their performance uh, in something like mountain biking would want to consider versus someone who's just trying to, you know, say lose 20 pounds and get toned or something like that.
1: Yeah. I find it interesting too, that you didn't really come to the sport with like a racing background, like a lot of other coaches and, you know, skills instructors tend to do like you. Sounds like you were just out there to have fun on the trail and you realized that, you know, strength training can make you stronger. So what, what are other reasons? I mean, a lot of people just assume they should do strength training and fitness training so that they can win races. But you're really coming at it from like the recreational rider perspective. So like why, why would recreational riders even need to do that?
0: Yeah, no, it, it is funny. Like I, I don't race, uh, you know, I've done a, a few races here and there. It's not like I've never done a mountain bike race, but the, uh, it, it's not my focus with riding. Like for me, riding is more of a, of a personal expression, you know, it's Mm -hmm. an, it's an art. Like I hate to use the word me against the mountain because I (laughs) I think we're, we're working in collaboration. Although sometimes I don't get that feeling that the mountain's working with me so much sometimes, (laughs) but you know, it's, it's, that's more what it is. It's not me against you. And so I think that racing can sometimes take people's focus off of that aspect. And I think having a balance is, is good, but um, I think a lot of people get way too caught up in racing and race results and they kind of lose focus on, you know, the the art of mountain biking, so to speak. But, you know, I mean, with that said, that's the, that is the reason that e- even if you don't race, that you should train because training is going to help you, uh, man, in so many different ways. I mean, one, it's going to help you have more fun. Like I I try to, it's tough because everyone's like, Hey man, I'm having fun on the trail. I enjoy mountain biking. And it's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, but there's levels of fun that you don't even know exist because you're not physically able to, to do it. And, and so there's more fun that you can have. And it's just, uh, it, you know, mountain biking is a, is a physical sport as well. So if you're not conditioning your body, then you're, it's going to be way more likely that you're going to, you know, have some sort of, you know, issues either both from like a wreck, like I said, like muscle and strength, like that's really one of your best ways to survive a wreck, but also just kind of long-term looking at it, things like mobility and strength training will help you avoid overuse injuries and just be able to enjoy riding for a lifetime. Um, which I think is really something that a lot of people lose sight of, you know, they're, Man, if you want to ride mountain bikes for a lifetime, then that's a different goal than I want to be the fastest racer in the world in the next year, Yeah, you know, and I've worked with both, you know, like I, I, you know, I worked with Aaron Gwynn and the Yeti World Cup team. I've worked with a lot of really high level riders. And so I know what, what it takes and, and what it's like to train at that level. But I also know the consequences of that and the drawbacks of that. And so I think that's kind of one of the things that your average rider doesn't realize is that a lot of the stuff that, that racers do to get into prime shape for racing it comes with a physical consequence it comes with a physical toll and if you're paying your mortgage based on your race results mm-hmm. then that trade off that may be worth it but if it's not you know then you know what are you then, then maybe it's not so but uh so anyways you know even even with that said like i think that your recreational rider even if they do decide to get some, to do some training can get led down the wrong path because they'll start trying to follow programs that are intended for racing as opposed to riding for a lifetime kind of, uh, focus. So,
1: yeah, that's a really interesting perspective. And I like too, how you said, you know, whether we are lining up, you know, at a start tape or if we're just out riding on our own, like we're always racing ourselves, right? We're always trying to get better and to have more fun. And so, you know, even if you're not, you don't have a number plate on, like you're still, if you're honest, like you're competing with yourself and you should want to be better and get faster and stronger and all that stuff.
0: Yeah. 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 Man, there's a, uh, Miyamoto Musashi. He's a, a samurai from the late or mid 1600s. Um, he wrote a book called the book of five rings and, you know, anybody who follows my stuff knows I love this dude and I quote his stuff all the time. But he had a quote that like, today is victory over yourself of yesterday and tomorrow is victory over a lesser foe. Like every day you should be improving just a little bit. And it's it's a mindset, it's a lifestyle. You know, the other thing that he talks about is like if you're you know, in his in his words, if you're a warrior, you're a warrior twenty four seven, like you know, I'm paraphrasing, but like there is no distinction between You know, everything that you do should be tied towards that. So, if you're a mountain biker, like the breakfast that you eat should be eaten with a view of the fact that you're a mountain biker. Like the choices that you make throughout the day, like there shouldn't be a separation. You know, like you're not a mountain biker on the weekend and Joe Schmo during the week. Like that's not how it works. Like, you know, that's where mobility training, like when you see the world that way, all of a sudden these decisions become self evident because. You're like, oh yeah, 15 minutes of mobility work. Like I do that because I'm a mountain biker. Mm. And that's what I do so that when I do get on the trail and ride, I can express myself as best I can. And like I said, it's it's a it's a it's a mentality, it's a lifestyle that people have to adopt. But like once you do, like I said, like a, a lot of this stuff becomes self-evident and it's uh I don't know, it's kind of a beautiful way to look at, at things instead of putting things in boxes sort of stuff. But, um,
1: yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what would you say? What are the biggest obstacles people have to getting and staying in shape for mountain biking? I mean, it sounds like you're saying for a lot of people, maybe it's commitment or at least just their view of how important is mountain biking. And we've seen this, you know, we've surveyed our readers and asked them recently, what, their biggest personal challenges are with regards to mountain biking. And a lot of them, they do say fitness and strength and that kind of thing. So what, what's keeping people from actually doing it and from, from getting stronger?
0: Well, I'll, I'll, I'll say first, like the first thing that people say is time, which is nonsense. It's a, it's a, that's a BS excuse.
1: That's the number one. That was the number one thing that everybody said, you know, that was their biggest challenge. They just don't have time to ride more. They don't have time to get in shape.
0: Right, yeah, well, again, that's not, um, well, that's, so getting in shape and riding more, if you think that riding more equates to, or, or getting in shape like those two things equal each other, then that may be part of the problem right there, because that's not necessarily it. It's really a matter of making smarter use of the trail riding time that you have, and then also supplementing that with the things that like strength and mobility, because again like you can do those things like getting out and riding more there's a giant time commitment involved with that and around that you know versus just you know doing a a 15 to 30 minute you know strength and mobility routine that you can do with equipment at home you know what i mean so the again like mindset is big and this is that's kind of what i'm talking about like when people say they don't have time what they're saying is like they're not looking at things the right way. Like they don't see the time that they have available or else they're, they think that they have to put in more time than they do. Hmm. And so they just don't even try. Yeah, You know what I mean? So if, if you think you've got to put in six hours a week to get into shape, uh, well, you know, shoot, I don't have time for that. That's my excuse. I don't have time. Right. Well, no, 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 no. That's not actually true. Like do you have an hour Like you have 15 minutes, you know, three times a week, you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. you've got time. And plus there's the old cliche that like, man, if you look at how much time you're looking at a TV screen or a computer screen or your phone, you've got time,
1: right? It's about priorities.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Take Facebook and Instagram off of your phone and watch how much time suddenly appears, (laughs) you know? And so, uh, but anyway, so that's the, you know, kind of the number one thing that people say is their problem, but I don't, I I don't think that's necessarily true. There's, you can find time and you can figure out what time you have and what's the best way to use the time that you have. So time is never really an excuse. Like one of the, the top things that really keeps people from starting and sticking with a training program, it's, Oh man, how do I, how do I put it? It's a kind of a multi-layered thing with that. We have this no pain, no gain mentality Mm -hmm. that we've got to be like, you know, working hard and, and almost kind of abusing ourselves. Um, or else we're not working out because man, riding a mountain bike's hard, you know, like you get done with a, with a hard ride. There's a reason it's called a hard ride, you know? And, and you're like, God, you know, your, your cardio, you're breathing hard, and your muscles are, are taxed, and your legs are sore, and, and maybe you're feeling it for a day or two afterwards. So working out has to be like that in order for it to get results, right?
1: Yeah, that's people's experience.
0: That's people's mindset. And so they really don't appreciate that they're working hard enough when they're riding their bike mm-hmm. and so really what you want to do is look at what do I get enough of what am I getting on the trail now I need to work the other stuff off the trail so you don't need more hard cardio you don't need more hard abusive like you know uh, high rep cardio based strength training stuff and and you know tons of high intensity intervals and stuff like you're getting cardio when you're on the trail and even if you're getting out, you know, twice a week, man, that's, that's like good. It's more than people realize, Yeah. you know, that that's good enough for your average rider. You also have to remember that we're trying to compare ourselves to a notoriously dirty sport and (laughs) you have to be realistic. Like I've worked with a lot of regular average riders. And in my experience, anyone who says they're able to put in more than two hard rides a week is not riding hard. You know, hard is relative to something else. And if every ride that you have is hard, they're not hard. They're all just moderate. And you don't realize what you're doing, you know. So uh, a truly hard ride is something that's going to take you a week to 10 days to recover from. So you can get a, a hard ride in and your body's going to take a week to recover. And you can get out for another, like, you know, moderate ride, working on some skills and stuff. And, man, you're getting plenty of of, of cardio with that. You don't need to be going crazy. So do this is where like my, my top priority or top recommendation for, for mountain bikers is man, focus on mobility. Do that first yeah. move better first. Then you can start adding in some strength training stuff if you've got the time and desire. But even then, you want the minimal effective dosage. Like what's the least amount of training that you can do to get the best results possible so that you have the most energy to recover and to put into riding your bike. And like that right there is where I think a lot of riders get uh, derailed because they start a training program and it's so stinking hard and they're so sore and they're so tired and it starts to interfere with their riding and their motivation levels aren't there. And then they quit and they're like, I don't want to do that again. And it's like, man, you know, if you went to the doctor and he gave you the wrong medicine, it doesn't mean don't go back to the doctor. <laughs> again. It just means yeah. you had the wrong medicine. And, and what I've found is that a lot of people have had really bad experiences with training programs and trying to do some sort of training. And they just kind of write it off without realizing that they just took the wrong medicine, that there's other ways to accomplish your goals. That are, are way easier and work with your body rather than trying to abuse yourself into a submission that uh, allow for – again, that if you want to train and you want to ride for a lifetime, you have to have a different mindset than I'm trying to peak for a race in eight weeks. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So again, it goes back to this. and But that's the problem is people are always trying to peak for something and they don't know what they're peaking for but they're training like maniacs. Like they're <laughs> trying to peak for something and it's like it's not sustainable. So –
1: I'm sure a lot of people, I mean, they need to hear that. They want to hear that um, because the way that you're explaining it, it's definitely much more approachable and seems like something that, that anybody can do. Yes. Are there special challenges for like older riders that maybe are just getting into the sport or maybe people who are like, you know, starting to find that they're getting older and and having more issues on the bike, I guess.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, there's definitely, you know, as we uh, get older, I'm 42 and uh, it's funny, they say it's all in your head, but unfortunately, some of my joints would disagree <laughs> with uh, with that. Like, you do start to realize, like, man, on a long enough timeline, things catch up with you. Yeah. And in your 20s, like, you, you can get away with so much nonsense because you just – the timeline just hasn't been long enough for that stuff to catch up with you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so, yeah, you you start to realize like, oh, OK, like that shoulder, like that thing really is not going to just get better on its own. Like I've got to address that. So I kind of jokingly tell people that my target person I'm trying to help is that middle aged dude, like 35 to 45 years old, who realized all of a sudden that the advantages of youth are wasted on the young. And it's like, crap, I've got to do something because I can't just get away with what was getting me through in my twenties and early thirties. Yeah. And so, um, that's where the, the special challenges that they face are that your margin for error is a lot less with going over the top with your training program. Like if you, if you push things too hard or if you're pushing the wrong thing, like you're, you know, for example, uh, doing, you know, a lot of heavy deadlifts before you've got the, you know, the mobility and your hip hinge to do it properly your margin for error is a lot lower and the odds of you getting hurt are higher and the odds of and the length of time it's going to take for you to recover are going to be higher. And so you really got to err on the side of caution and make sure that you're really focusing on quality of movement and things like mobility rather than, you know, trying to keep up with some meathead 20 year old, you know, their like their approach. So, Yeah. I mean, it's funny, man. I look back, I've been training since I was, again, like I said, since I was a teenager. So I mean, I've I've literally got closing in on 30 years of strength training experience. And man, I look back on some of the stuff that I did to myself and I'm just like, God, you were an idiot, man. Like, (laughs) what were you doing to yourself? Yeah. But in your twenties, you don't know any better, dude. You, 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 you get crazy and you wake up the next morning and you feel great and you do it again and you think that like hey man it must be all right but it's not so yeah so yeah yeah like mobility and that quality of movement and just really trying to take on that that mindset like your mindset has to shift when you hit that you know mid to late 30s early 40s mindset to that like I've mentioned a few times, like riding for a lifetime. Yeah. Like it, you're not going to win freaking too many more King of the Mountains on Strava. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's a 20 year old's game right there. Yeah. So they're the ones with the time and the energy to just freaking <laughs> keep doing it. But anyways. Right. So yeah, yeah. That's that's kind of been just my personal experience, and also the experience I've had with some other riders is just that. uh, You know that 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 shift in focus there.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean. If I, my math is correct. You started doing this when you were 29 ish, you started, uh, with your strength training programs for mountain bikers. So how has your approach evolved over time? Like, it sounds like you've gained a lot of like personal wisdom in that time as well. Have you, have you seen like the workouts change in that time or, you know, how do you, or did you just get it from an early age and you're, you're lucky?
0: No, no. I mean, I would, I would say that there's a lot of principles that I still use that are the same, but the, the training programs and stuff, there's definitely been an evolution. This applies to everything, but in the strength training field, there's a, you know, a little joke that there's a difference between 10 years experience and the same one year's experience, 10 years in a row. <laughs> and right. you know, and there is. And so if you're not looking back on what you did 10 years ago and, you know, shaking your head a little bit, then you're probably not challenging yourself and growing yeah. in in whatever you're doing. And so uh, yeah, I, I would I'd say I've, I've definitely the intensity level of stuff like I've I've realized that you can get a lot more out of a lot less. and yeah, the the the, the focus on making sure that you're, you're not hurt because if you're hurt, it doesn't matter how fit you are. Mm-hmm. And there's never an excuse to get hurt in the gym. And so, you know, I, I've always had that that focus, but um, just really figuring out better ways to help people get results with less less effort and less risk of injury. And just really like that's the that's the name of the game, man. For for a strength coach is to, you know, that that that's their goal. So, you know, that's where some of the the new tools that I've been getting into lately, like the steel mace and the Indian clubs and even like the, the ramping isometrics uh, come in because it's just an evolution of trying to find ways of getting results with, you know, minimal negative stress, I guess I'd say Mm -hmm. on the body and minimizing that injury potential. So, so yeah, yeah, there's definitely been some, some evolution, but nothing gigantic. I mean, I wouldn't say like, man, I used to, do, you know, train this way. And now I realize that that was all wrong. And now I'm (laughs) into this training system because this is the best, but it's just, it's, it's just a continual evolution of stuff. And so, but yeah, yeah, it's definitely been some, some as, as I get older and I see what it's like on the other side of the mirror, I definitely remember being an, uh, an insensitive, uh, 20 year old, 20 something year old personal trainer, working with older clients and older, you know, in their forties, right. uh, where I'm at now just going like, man, what do you mean? You can't just do this five sets of five <laughs> deadlift workout, like in your sore for like a week afterwards. Like, what do you mean? Like, you're just not eating enough protein right. or some crap like that. You know what I mean? It's like, no, yeah. no, 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 no. You're 40. Like you, you gotta, you, you're, you gotta be nice to your body.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So you know, you started out, you said coaching and doing strength training for track and field sounds like, and now, you know, you're focused on mountain bike strength training, obviously. So how is mountain bike strength training different than something you would do say for track or, or even for like road cycling?
0: Um, wow. Yeah. That's uh, a good question. Like track is a very, there's a lot involved with it, right? So whenever you try to compare like make statements about a sport people are like oh you're talking trash or whatever it's like, no 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 i'm just <laughs> i'm just i'm just saying like you know track is a pretty straightforward sport it's a pretty linear sport like there's not a lot of direction change going on you know your uh it, the the task ahead of you is very straightforward and so the the strength training um and, and road cycling as well kind of falls into that that category like there's a little bit more chaos in a road riding environment but but really man compared to a mountain bike ride like a mountain bike ride is just chaos on wheels yeah and i mean that's why we love it right and so the the physical demands the the movement demands are are going to be different and you know it's all on a on a spectrum so to speak right like so the the human body moves in these different ways and all athletes need these movements it's just what's the degree to which they need them at, right? Like okay. if, you're a, if you're a power lifter, you need a deadlift, at, you know, close to a thousand pounds, you know what I mean? Because that's your sport. Yeah. But if you're a mountain biker, do you need a deadlift at a thousand pounds? No,
1: mm-hmm.
0: no, no, no. You know what I mean? So it's all, all of its relative towards what your, your sport is and, and stuff like that. So even though both athletes need a, a hip hinge, and, you know, they'll use a deadlift to train that the degree to which they take it is going to be different.
1: OK, makes sense.
0: Yeah. So for uh, a track athlete and a road rider, they're, they're going to have a different just kind of use of some of these movement patterns. In a mountain biker, in my experience, there's two things that really are lacking in a lot of riders that uh, you, you wouldn't necessarily need to train as much with other athletes. And this is why I think that it's lacking with a lot of other riders. And, and the first one is the, the rotational hip hinge and the, everybody knows about like the hip hinge. That's like your, your deadlift or, you know, on, on your bike, like your attack position, Mm -hmm. you know, your good, good downhill body position where your butt's back and your chest is down. But the problem is, is that your body also is made to hinge and rotate through the hips. And this is actually how you you move on the bike, and you're able to use your hips to swivel them back and forth in order to corner and and maneuver the bike, uh, you know, with your hips better. Yeah. And and a lot of riders are they don't have this hip hinge, and, or this rotational hip hinge, and so this is why most riders struggle with cornering. It's not that they don't know the ten steps of cornering technique, or they haven't watched enough videos on YouTube. Mm-hmm. It's that their hips literally cannot perform this movement the way that they need to in order to corner properly on their bikes. They're, they're locked up in this rotational hip hinge. And so when you can't hinge and rotate your hips off to the side and do it in a balanced manner, what happens is, is you end up tipping your shoulders inside. And so this is why like riders have been told like, you know, lean the bike and not your body. Because when they go to lean their body, they end up tipping their shoulders inside and their weight goes inside and they slam down. And so when you are able to rotate or hinge and rotate the hips to the outside and kind of counteract that lean, now you're able to lean but you're able to do it in a balanced way. So this is like how surfers and skateboarders – turn Mm -hmm. you know if you watch them they're using their hips and you'll see that their hips are really are are moving in an arc around their feet okay you know their hips don't stay over their feet they're moving around their feet and riders man our hips are so locked up that we have a really tough time moving our hips around our feet and they just stay stuck over our feet and then our shoulders are moving around our feet but that's how you're getting off balance yeah right like the And so, um, but yeah, that rotational hip hinge is a huge one. And I have a video on my website uh, for the stick windmill, um, which is the exercise, the the mobility movement that I I recommend every rider uh, start out with and use to to help them improve that rotational hip hinge. But that'll also help a lot with lower back pain, uh, just in general, like that, just even off of the bike, people... Moving and bending over to pick things up and, 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 and just being locked up in just one plane of movement with their hinge and not able to get this rotational hinge going, yeah. um, leads to a lot of issues both on and off the bike. So I mean, that's a huge one that I like that movement right there is the, the top thing that I really try to emphasize with mountain bikers way more than I would emphasize with other, you know, other athletes.
1: Yeah. And that's not really a necessarily like a strength thing either, right? It's, it's a mobility thing. It's being able to, to do that motion and it's being like flexible enough.
0: Yeah. You can training get strong with it. See, the, if you look back in like old time strongman stuff, they had a, there's a lift called the bent press and a, a lift called the two hand anyhow. <laughs> and it basically made use of this principle of this rotational hip hinge to get underneath the weight and straightening your arms. So like, say you had like Eugene Sandow, as uh, a, a famous old time strong man. He had the record for the bent press. It was like 318 pounds. Uh-huh. And it's, it's literally like getting a weight over your head with one hand. Right. So, and, and so the way that you would do it is you would get the weight set and you would perform this rotational hip hinge to kind of corkscrew yourself down underneath the weight yeah. as you straightened your arm, right? So you're not actually lifting it. You're lowering yourself underneath the weight through this rotational hinge and straightening your arm and locking it out. And then you use the rotational hinge on the way back up to lift the weight. So you're using your hips to lift this weight, mm-hmm. not your arm. Yeah. So you you can get strong with it. And, and there are exercises, like I, I have riders start doing the stick windmill with a steel mace to add load to it. And there is a, an exercise called the kettlebell windmill, which is uh, another way to add load to it. So once you can move with it, once you move well with it, then I definitely recommend trying to get strong with it because that basically kind of cements the movement. It, it stress proofs the movement. It's, it's one thing to do the movement just you know without any stress on it, but it's another thing to do it under stress. So that's another thing that strength training does for you is it it makes sure that you maintain your quality of movement under stress on the trail. And so, um, but yeah, it is primarily a mobility movement compared to something like a deadlift, which is just a straight leverage, you know, strength movement. Mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, yeah, it, it it it's something that not a lot of riders or, or people are really even. Um, aware of i mean just in the general fitness field or even the functional training field you don't hear a lot of people talking about it because uh honestly the cornering is something that really separates cyclists from other uh you know people that ride a two-wheel bike and especially bikes like like uh you know that right there it, it really separates them from a lot of other athletes and so you just don't see the emphasis on this in these other programs and so you just you know, you don't see it in, in a lot of riding programs. Like to my knowledge, I'm the only strength coach out there that really talks about and emphasizes this rotational hinge with, with riders. Like I'm not really aware of a lot of other coaches who are, who are pushing this uh, like this.
1: Yeah. What are some other strength or mobility exercises that you recommend for mountain bikers?
0: You know, I really, uh, the other thing that I recommend riders really focus on is their squat pattern being able to squat is a it does two things for you one it's it's a health like longevity thing like your ability to squat is something that's going to you know just be a predictor of your quality of life Hmm. later on as you get older. I mean, think about it. If you you see a 60 year old person and they can perform a deep squat, you know, nothing else other than like this dude can perform a deep squat and comfortably. And this dude can barely perform a half squat and looks like he's about to fall over. Yeah. Which guy do you think is going to have a better quality of life?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: You you know what I mean? So there is that, that, that overall mobility that being able to perform a deep squat just, promotes and, and, and demands, it, it carries over a lot of different things and it keeps your body moving well. But the other thing is that your squat pattern is directly related to your standing pedaling. And this is another thing, a lot of riders, um, I, I really hate the sit and spin advice. I think sit and spin is, it's terrible advice in general, and it's, it's doubly terrible for mountain bikers because you really need to know how to get your butt out of the saddle because that's how you're able to maneuver your bike the best. And it's also the best for your body. Like when you're sitting down and you're, you're basically, you know, it's it's almost a joke today. Like sitting's the new smoking, right? So like if sitting's bad for you, what is sitting down and grinding up a climb? You know, I I joke around, it's like doing a bong hit of crack. I mean, it, it can't be good for you. So when you stand up, so many good things happen to you on the bike. You're you you get, um, you know, more fuller hip extension. Your hips are the strongest muscles in the body. So you're able to get more out of them. You're getting full knee extension. And not only that, you've got pressure at the knee, which causes the co contraction between the quad and the uh, hamstring to stabilize the knee, right? Like that's the trick when you're sitting down, even if you're, you know, you've got the perfect bike fit and it's, you know, right to the right knee position, you're still not getting that co-contraction because there's no pressure because you're sitting down. And so you're running your knee and all of this force through your leg, through this position with a relatively unstable knee joint. And so when you stand up, you take care of that. You're getting your lower back in a better position. You're able to open up your chest, which allows you to access the top of your lungs better. You're able to look up without having to look up as high. So it's easier on your neck, not as much strain on your neck. So, so much good stuff happens when you stand up and you let your, your, uh, your center of gravity move forward. Like a lot of riders make the mistake of when they stand up, they, they basically maintain the same seated position but they're standing up like they're just kind of hovering in a seated position, <laughs> yeah. but they're not seated. That's not standing pedaling. Standing pedaling is shifting your hips forward and getting in front of your bike center of gravity a little bit and then, you know, letting your, your you know, that position work for you. And so a lot of riders are, you know, the, the sit and spin mentality keeps them from from really harnessing the power of, of standing pedaling. And they just don't have the the body position and strength and all the stuff that, that you need to. And that's directly related to your squat. And so uh, your squat pattern and like lunges and, and things of that nature are going to really help you improve your standing pedaling, which is going to improve your performance on the trail. And also, you know, what, what I recommend to riders is, You want to stand for your high tension efforts and and most people kind of instinctively know what I mean when I say high tension efforts. Like you're having to kind of like lock down the core a little bit and start applying more tension to keep the pedals going. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's one of two choices at that point. Do I downshift and kind of lock down in the adult fetal position or do I stand up? And start working from there and my recommendation is you use standing pedaling for your high tension hard efforts and you use seated pedaling for your easier recovery efforts and you're using those two in conjunction with each other so that's like how I, i i recommend riders use those two things and and uh you know how the the squat pattern and making sure you're training that will help with that but that's that's the other one that i see a lot of riders lacking in is that squat pattern. And and I can see it directly related to their inability to get into a good body position when they're in a standing pedaling position.
1: Yeah. That's really interesting because it does sort of run counter to what a lot of riders are taught early on, which is to, you know, sit and spin. Um, and you know, in terms of like keeping weight on the back wheel, especially if you're like in loose conditions.
0: Well, what's funny is I have a video again on my website that people can check out, like what, I forget the name of it. Like what really happens when you stand up or something like that. But if you look at it like that, your butt being on the back seat only improves traction on the rear wheel when you're on flat ground. Because hmm. it's gravity, right? And think about it, right? Because gravity is pulling is, is pulling pushing straight down. As soon as you go onto an angle, like your your butt isn't continuing to go straight down, like you know, like push into the bike. It's it's pushing in a different direction now. Like your center of gravity mm-hmm. is not is no longer pushing straight down into the bike. The bike is angled up, but your center of gravity is still being pulled straight down. So it changes how your center of gravity is affecting that traction. And so it's not really uh, like having your butt on the seat is not really helping. That body position is where you want to be. You need your hips back in order to keep weight on the back tire. But having your butt actually being in contact with the seat, because again, like your seat tube, that's what it is. Your seat tube is now, it's no longer pointed down with gravity. It's pointed towards the, uh, you know, into the incline. Yeah. And so your butt being pulled down by gravity is no longer, you know, being pulled into the seat tube. You know what I mean? So, like I said, I have the, the video, but that only counts your butt being in contact with the seat. Only helps improve your traction if you're on flat ground. As soon as you start to climb, it's no longer helping. And it's more that body position that you need. And, and the two look similar, but your butt doesn't have to be. That's why you can have your 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 seat down and still make it up like steep, loose climbs. Right. You know what I mean? It's hard. It's, it, you, you, sometimes it's easier. I find it's easier because I have easier use of my hips to put them where I need instead of trying to move around my seat. And, and just like, you know, so yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I know, man, it's a common kind of trail tip myth, but, uh, yeah, it doesn't, when you actually sit down and think about it over a beer or two, you realize like, (laughs) wait a minute, that doesn't actually make sense. Yeah. But, uh, um, so yeah, yeah, there you go.
1: Yeah. And a lot of people too, they, have saddle sore issues or, you know, they just feel like biking is uncomfortable. And yeah, it seems like this is, this is good news to those people as well to say like, Hey, maybe I should focus on my standing pedaling position and see how that works out. So definitely seems like a lot of advantages there.
0: I don't own a single pair of padded shorts, bro. (laughs)
1: Well, there you go. That's a, that's a pretty solid endorsement.
0: I've been on multi-day biking every day four plus hours of riding and by the end of it my friends who had the chamois butter and the padded shorts and all that stuff still had saddle sores were still suffering still having issues and i was fine because i'm not grinding my crotch into my seat like that's the that's the other thing too is like what what you need to get so uh, the what you're looking for is a wedge. You're trying to create a wedge to to get the, the weight into this the, the tire. And when you stand up, you're creating that wedge between your hands and your feet. Mm-hmm. When you sit down, you're creating that wedge between your groin and your feet.
1: Hmm. Yeah.
0: I mean, if you think about it instinctively, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Like when you sit down, you don't feel as much pressure and tension on the hands, but you feel it on your, your crotch, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. When you when you stand up, you feel no pressure on your crotch, but you feel that tension and that pressure between that interplay of tension between your hands and your feet. Mm-hmm. So it's that wedge, it's that tension that your body's looking for in order to create the wedge to get the 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 pressure that you're looking for to create traction. So yeah, it's just two different ways to solve the same problem. It's not that that sitting down, you know what I mean? It's just there's two different ways. And yeah, you can sit down. It works, but it has disadvantages. Your body's in a bad biomechanical position and you're also just grinding the crap out of a very sensitive area. Yeah. So by taking a different approach, your body's in a better position. You're not grinding your crotch. Hey, riding doesn't hurt so much.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. So one of the programs on your website is called ramping isometrics for mountain biking. And I think you mentioned it earlier. What the heck is a ramping isometric?
0: Man, ramping isometrics. This is interesting, right? Like you're in, you're in the strength training field for 20 years and you think you've seen just about everything. And then you go to a seminar and some little old dude blows your mind with something. And you're like, holy crap, what is this? Where has this been all my life? So a ramping isometric most people uh, are familiar with the term isometric and an isometric contraction is one where you're not moving Right, so your, your three contractions you have anyways I won't go into the three your isometrics is where you're not moving. Okay Okay, so if you think about like pushing into a wall Right or if you're you know, you have your two hands you know palms together and you're pushing into them Like you can feel muscle tension being created, but there's no movement being created, right? right? So you don't actually have to move to create tension in your muscles. Moving causes tension to be created because it's really hard to move without tension, but you don't have to move to create tension. And so that's where isometrics, that's what isometrics are, is, is they're, they're creating tension without movement. Okay. And I isometrics like i said a lot of people have heard of them they've been around forever uh, i mean literally forever if you think about like the old shaolin monks like holding you know clay pots and stuff like that for mm-hmm. you know that that was a form of isometric training you know uh, spartan archers used to pull their their uh, their their bows and, and hold them drawn again you know isometric training so it literally is isometrics have been used since the dawn of time as far as we know but the um As far as in the the most strength training programs, they're not used very much because there's been a couple of, uh, I don't know, I didn't really, the the ramping isometrics are the best way to use them and I don't understand why they're not more popular. And so Mm -hmm. what ramping isometrics are, you get into a position where, again, this, where you're going to create tension without movement. So, you know, for example, uh, you get a uh, a rope or I I suggest people use a jujitsu belt because, it's soft and it's not going to tear. And so it's, it's really kind of the best of both worlds, but you get it wrapped around your back and you get it basically like a chest press position, right? Like, so you're going to, you know, do like a, like a chest press or like a push up type, uh, movement, but you're, you're sitting there with the belt wrapped around your back. So as you push forward, the belt is stopping your hands from moving forward. So you can push as hard as you want, but you're not going to move forward. And so what you do is you set a clock, Uh, You have three 30-second intervals, one right after the other. In the first 30 seconds, you apply 50% effort, 50% tension into the belt or, you know, trying to put into that chest press movement. Mm -hmm. And during this 50%, this should be easy, right? And so you're getting your breathing going. Right? It's very important. I'm a huge proponent of making sure you're focusing on your breathing no matter what you're doing. And so you're getting your breathing going. You're getting your posture where it needs to be. You're making sure you're feeling it in the right places where you want to feel it. So it's kind of like a, a warm-up almost, if mm-hmm. you will. Yeah. Right. So the buzzer goes off and then you uh, after 30 seconds, and you immediately ramp up to 75 80% effort. So right where it's starting to get uncomfortable. So you start pushing into the belt, and it's right where it's like, oh, okay, this is, this is starting to get hard. And, but you got to hold that same posture. You got to hold the same breathing. Like nothing else changes. You just ramp up the tension. And then finally, the last 30 seconds, you ramp it up to 100%, whatever you've got left. And again, the, the thing that it really helps people learn how to do is during these super high tension, hard efforts, not break not start like collapsing, you know, breathing funny and making funny faces and letting their posture break, <laughs> you know? So you have this isolated moment to really focus on maintaining these things under this really high tension environment. And so at the end of that, you're done. You just do one set to failure. Like that's your goal is to get as close to failure as you can. And since you're not moving, your odds of getting hurt are very low, Yeah. right? So you, you can Go hard, like take it as hard as you want, as hard as you can, and odds of getting hard, hurt or low. You do that with a deadlift or a bench press or max rep push-ups. I can tell you from experience, odds of getting hurt go up You know, yeah. as you really start to push that that ceiling there. So what ramping isometrics really allow you to do is train the skill of creating tension in a movement pattern. And then you can use movements, either like your sport or you can go in the gym and and do your regular exercises. And now you're training how to apply that tension to the movement. So the big aha moment for me was the skill of creating tension is one skill. The skill of applying tension to a movement is another skill. And we've been making a mistake of of, – confusing those two things. So we use a deadlift to get stronger, Mm -hmm. right? So we're trying to get more tension out of the muscle by putting more weight on a movement, Mm -hmm. but that increases your injury risk that increases all of these things. So when you use ramping isometrics, you're able to train these high tension skills safely. And then you're able to apply them to your sport. And, uh, you know, if you want to go on the gym and still do some traditional movements and stuff, but now, I'm not using deadlifts to get strong, right? I'm using them to practice my movement. So I'm not going in the gym and pushing 100% on my deadlifts. So my odds of getting hurt on them are lower. So it's just all of this goodness comes from being able to separate
1: mm-hmm.
0: getting strong, like the skill of creating tension from my skill, my, my movement skills. Yeah. And so um, so that's what ramping isometrics are about. But they're really great because they the, the workouts take like 20 minutes or less, um, like I said, you're doing one set of each exercise and the results are uh, noticeable pretty quickly and, and it's pretty unique. Like the, 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 the ability to maintain posture and breathing under those high tension efforts is something that we really don't think about training. But if you think about your last mountain bike ride, uh, and you think about how well did I hold up when things really got hard, mm-hmm. you probably see some room for improvement. So, um, we should train it and this is a good way to train it.
1: Yeah. That's really interesting. All right. We're going to take a break real quick, but when we come back, we're going to talk about eliminating pain through strength and mobility training. And we'll also talk about your flat pedal manifesto. Stay tuned. You can't see me, but I'm wearing an awesome single tracks hat right now. It's actually the reason my voice sounds so amazing. Okay, so maybe not, but you never know until you get a hat for yourself. Go to shop.singletracks.com to find Singletracks hats, t-shirts, stickers, tubular headwear, and can coolers. Shipping is free within the USA, and your purchase helps support the Singletracks podcast. That's shop.singletracks.com, and thank you for your support. And we're back. So, James, some of your training programs focus on eliminating pain. How much of the pain that riders experience is due to strength or mobility issues versus like bike fit or equipment selection?
0: Oh, man, they're definitely related to each other. I I would say that bike fit and equipment selection plays a role, but it gets overplayed. I think that finding a bike that fits is necessary everybody doesn't necessarily need a bike fit
1: mm-hmm.
0: kind of thing also i remind people that a bike fit is only good when you're sitting down i mean that's how they set the bike fit up yeah. so as soon as you stand up which again i encourage people to do more like the whole bike fit kind of goes out the window hmm. so i but you can't have a bike that has bad equipment i think i think most riders their their handlebars are way too wide and and your handlebars being too wide can definitely lead to some issues, especially with like the shoulders and elbows and, and neck. Yeah. I encourage riders to do a push-up, find where your your and, and then measure where your hands are there. Mm-hmm. And that's about how wide your handlebars should be.
1: So yeah. How wide is that? I mean, cause everybody keeps saying like they want wider and wider bars and wider is better. I mean, what are we talking about for like the average male?
0: For the average male, I would say you're probably looking at about 28 inches. Again, I, I, I apologize. I have not given over to speaking the millimeters <laughs> so someone can translate that for me. But, um, 28 inches, give or take, but definitely well below the average 30 inches that, uh, most handlebars are coming.
1: So yeah, that's like 710 millimeters.
0: Yeah. I was actually reading something online that a lot of enduro racers and, and downhillers are actually starting to gravitate more towards narrower bars or in that 720 range. But cause what you're finding is that the forces that you're trying to handle are coming from the, the, the front, like the, 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 what's known as the sagittal plane front to back like they're not lateral they're not side to side like unless the yeti like reaches out and swats your head you know what i mean like you're not really dealing with lateral forces yeah. you're mainly dealing with frontal forces and so the idea of having your handlebars out wide came from the idea of dealing with lateral forces a lot of the examples that you'll see people give like i've seen a couple of videos where you know they're showing like oh you know when i'm pushing you from the side When your hands are narrower, it's harder for you to resist this sideways push. When your hands are wide, Mm -hmm. it's easier to resist this sideways push. But that's not where the forces are are pushing you from on the trail. They're pushing you from the front. So what you're looking for is where are you strongest and most mobile? Where do you have the biggest range of motion? Right? Like we all talk about our arms being part of our suspension. You're starting to widen your arms out wider than your your push-up width, and you shorten your range of motion.
1: Yeah. Yeah. People talk about it though, like it's a leverage thing, but yeah, I mean, if you think about it, it's not, it's not hard to turn your wheel. I mean, that doesn't take a lot of strength, right? Like you're really, like you said, it's a different set of forces that you really need to be concerned about.
0: And you're also not turning a wheel, right? Like if I'm turning a wheel, I want a wider wheel, right? I, I, I'm, I'm messing with a lever. Yeah. It's a yeah, but there is a lever involved. Like, and this is one of the things that mace training really taught me because mace training, you have a weight on one end and not the other, and so it's a lever. And you really learn like, wow, if my hands are too wide, it's harder for me to actually control this lever. Like there is a sweet spot for me to control this lever and be able to move it effectively and like Oh, what well, do you know? It happens to be about the same width as my push-up mm-hmm. uh, hand width. And so you actually lose the, – the reason that I cut my handlebars down is because I felt like I, after doing some mace training and really getting that leverage, the feel of working with a lever, I started to feel how my handlebars being too wide was making it hard for me to – you know, really lever my handlebars properly, like do the push with my my bottom hand and and all of that stuff. So by shortening my handlebars, I found that I was able to lever the handlebars, use a push pull action with the top and the bottom hand more effectively, and improve my cornering um, dramatically. So, uh, but also just my my neck and my shoulders were starting to feel better as well because I was able to get my arms in a better position when I was standing up, and yeah, so. There's a lot of good stuff that comes from, you know, uh, I, I think narrower handlebars. So, but I do think that, like, yeah, you can't have, you know, a bike that's too big or a stem that's too long or handlebars that are too wide. And, and those things will cause problems. But they're usually pretty obvious and pretty quick fixes and I think at that point people get sucked down in the rabbit hole. And that's when they should start thinking more about strength and mobility issues. Like once you've got kind of these basic things set up, like you know, your stems in the 50 to 60 millimeter range, your handlebars are in that, you know, 28 to 30 inch range, you know, I'll be generous a little bit for people who really want those wider bars. You know, you you've got a bike that, that fits, it's not too big and or too small. That if you're still having pain problems that's probably more of a strength and mobility issue than a bike fit or equipment selection thing. So, and that's why I I would go down that rabbit hole at that point rather than continue to go down the, the, the bike fit or equipment selection rabbit hole.
1: Yeah. And you mentioned too earlier, we were talking about how strength can really help you prevent certain injuries as well. Right. How does that work? I mean, are we talking like broken bones or are we talking, uh, other kinds of, Injuries.
0: Well, I mean, one, I will say that like, bro, you know, you don't want to oversell anything, but you're being stronger is definitely going to increase and having some muscle will definitely increase your ability to absorb an impact. And the better that your muscles can absorb the impact, the less of that impact is going to get transferred to the bone. And so you know what I mean? It's the the less chance that's going to happen. So you definitely do increase your ability to sustain, you know, hard impact and, and sustain less of an injury that way. So both acutely and also over the long run, you know, every sport is like there's a difference between being fit and being healthy. Being fit is task dependent. That's why being fit to run a marathon is different than being fit to run a hundred meter dash, mm-hmm. which is different than being fit to, to be a mountain biker, right? Like being fit is task specific. Yeah. Being healthy is like you're just generally being free of disease and being able to move and function well.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so these two things are not the same. And in focusing too much on fitness, which just riding your bike and focusing too much on, on like, you know, bike specific cardio training and things like that, you'll get really fit, but you're not going to be healthy. You're going to have mobility issues and strength issues. You're going to wear down certain joints more than others. And, you know, eventually these things are going to lead to you being that 65 year old man who can't squat and you know can barely move outside of his bike and unfortunately you see that right like we see a lot of people who who appear to move pretty well on their bikes but then they get off of their bikes and they don't look very comfortable in their own bodies Hmm. yeah and this is a this is the health versus fitness they're fit to ride a bike they're not very healthy to interact with the rest of their lives in, in the world And so strength training will help you with that. Now, the the yin and the yang, the the healthier you are, on some ways, the higher you can take your fitness. And so by only focusing on your fitness, you actually retard your development over the long run. And so it's this yin and yang thing, this balance that you have to have. But we really get focused on the short-term stuff. Uh, People forget too, like, you know, science and studies, they tend to look at things in like six to eight week periods, Mm -hmm. you know, and again, I've mentioned before, like when you're trying to get results in six to eight weeks, that's different than, you know, what do I need to do to be able to ride into my sixties and seventies and, you know, as long as I want, um, sort of a goal.
1: Yeah. That seems like a much better goal. And it seems like a more common goal, you know, if we're honest, like uh, at least most of the people I ride with and talk to, they're all they all have that question, you know, like how, how long can I keep riding? You know, can I keep doing this until I'm 50 or 60 or 70? You know, we see stories of people who do that. And a lot of us really aspire to that, but don't really know how to get there.
0: No, man, that's, that's it. You just, you got to take care of your meat sack, bro. <laughs> that is the, the name of the game. If you don't take care of it, like, like that's it. You only get one of them and that's what's, you know, what you got to rely on to get you through this stuff. And so if you take care of it, then it'll take care of you and you can, you know, have a lot of fun with it for a long time. But, uh, yeah, you just got to make that commitment. But again, the, the, the thing is is people just have to, it's how you look at it, right? If if you're, if you're looking at it the right way, then it's easy to do. If you're looking at, at exercise, this soul sucking waste of time, like, yeah, you're never going to get started. And if you do, you're always going to quit because you hate it. Right. But if you realize, like, man, this is what's going to allow me to ride, you know, into in my 60s and 70s and have fun and be doing good with it, then it just – it looks different. So – and that's what I think, again, like not a lot of people talk about this stuff. We're always just, you know, I don't know, Strava and King of the Mountain and their – you know, the, the, the race training and stuff like that. I just – I think that a lot of people – they, you know they come into riding and you you do a quick landscape check, right? Anytime you come into a new tribe, you look around and you're like, all right, who's the cool guys? <laughs> Who do I want to be like? Yeah. you know, what's going on here? and And you see that the racers are, you know, they're they're held up in in the mountain biking world. they're they get the press and they get the congratulations and stuff like that. And so well you get the message that like, well, I must want to race, you know. Because if, if I want to be part of this tribe and get recognition, then I must want to race. And so and, – and I think like you said, man, I don't think most people want to race. I think there's a lot of people who are racing out there simply because they feel like it's what they're supposed to do
1: mm-hmm.
0: but not what they really want to do. Yeah. And so uh, – but yeah, man, when you're, when you're riding just because, man, I love riding and I want to do this for as long as I can and, and you know, training is just going to help me do that. Um, it's different than like, man, I don't really like racing, but I feel like I need to, and I got to do this program because it's going to help me, you know, perform better. And, you know, and then as as soon as you're done racing, well, what's the, what's the point of training, you know? So it's, yeah, it's just kind of a a different mindset, but yeah, I really, I really try to talk to and, and, uh, cater to the average rider who, you know, may race, may not, but they're just, that's not their priority. They just want to have fun and, and do this for as long as they can.
1: Yeah, that's a really good distinction. So I want to switch gears real quick and talk about flat pedals and pedaling. Yeah. So you have this flat pedal manifesto that has been widely circulated online and discussed. And essentially, you argue that clipless pedals aren't necessary for a lot of riders. And many of us are actually probably better off riding flat pedals, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is definitely uh, kind of my decision there. Yeah. Just kind of looking at the the facts and stuff. And so,
1: well, I mean, you had a, you had your own sort of personal experience with that as well. Like you had a bad clipless experience and then started really like investigating. So like, how did all that come about?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you know, it's funny, man. Cause the, uh, I know I joke around with people. I tell them that, uh, bike James is an interesting character. He's kind of, you know, I hear these rumors about him and I'm like, man, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know that I did that, uh, sort of thing. So
1: (laughs) people are like saying things that you say or believe, but you didn't actually know that you said or believe those things.
0: Yeah. That one of the things is kind of the the evolution and where the flat pedal revolution manifesto and, and all that came from. And so, um, yeah, I guess like backing up, like everyone else, when I got into mountain biking, I was, I went to the bike shop, uh, you know, got my bike and I was told, Hey man, you're going to need clipless pedals. You know, and, and even even not knowing anything about riding, I just, you know, just looking at it from the outside, like I knew that you needed clipless pedals because everybody rode clipless pedals. Yeah. And I was told that you needed to be able to pull up on the backstroke and you know, they're just gonna, you know, help you out and you're gonna be have way more power and efficiency and all these magical things that were gonna be bestowed upon you as soon as you, you know, put clipless pedals on your bike. And so uh, they, they put clipless pedals on my bike and it was, uh, some of the old, uh, the, the, Shimano DX, um, downhill pedals. So I was actually riding like my flat pedals, uh, or, uh, you know, my tennis shoes on the trail. Mm-hmm. And then I would clip in and I would ride around town and I would spend, you know, dedicated time, man. Like, I went out and in, into the yard and clipping and unclipping and just, you know, practicing with them. And, You know, I never quite got super comfortable, especially with my left foot, uh, Mm -hmm. getting it unclipped. And if anyone's ever ridden in Santa Barbara, man, like those are some gnarly, gnarly trails. Like that is not (laughs) the place that you want to learn to ride clipless and not be able to get unclipped. And so I I had the proverbial fall over at a stop sign uh, incident one day. And I was like, man, if this had happened on the trail, I would have killed myself. Like I I can't, I'm just, I'm having more fun on flats. It's like just basically my tennis shoes, the, the clipless pedals are stressing me out. You know, I had a buddy that I was riding with who rode flat pedals and he was good. And I was like, well, I can at least get as good as him, Mm -hmm. uh, on flats before I need to worry about switching. So man, I'm not going to worry about it right now. So I went and I bought a pair of, uh, of, you know, BMX flat pedals and put them on my bike. And like I said, my my intention from that day was that I'm going to put clipless pedals on my bike someday. Like I'm giving giving something up. Like I'm uh, giving up power and not being able to pull up on the backstroke. But I'm going to wait until it's my skills and until I know it's not my skills and fitness that are holding me back. And it's my pedals that are holding me back. And that's when I'll make the switch. And so it's just, you know, years and years go by and I never really felt compelled to make that switch. Like I realized like, man, I can ride really, really good on flat pedals, but still thinking like clipless pedals are better. Clipless pedals are better.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I get into the mountain bike strength training thing and it was actually after I started working with Aaron Gwynn and he got signed by the Yeti World Cup team. And I got signed on to, to work with the whole Yeti World Cup team that I was like, well, all right, I've got all these riders that are riding clipless pedals. I should at least look into the science behind clipless puddles so I can see how are they working? Like what exactly are they doing so that I can design better training programs to enhance what they're doing? Right. It makes sense. And so I start looking into it and that's what, that was my first mistake was actually looking into it because <laughs> you, you quickly realize that, wow, like what we're told is not out there. Like people act like, you know you can just throw a stick and hit five different studies that show beyond the shadow of a doubt that this is how clipless pedals work and this is how they're better and all this stuff and i couldn't find anything and so i started uh digging into it more and i started coming across studies that pointed in the opposite direction like there's two different studies out there that show you don't want to pull up on the backstroke so like anyone who still says you need to pull up on the backstroke dude, it's like flat earth theory, you know, (laughs) like it's been disproven. It's not true. Like, and, but it's just so ingrained in our culture, in the cycling culture that it's just said like de facto and no one's ever questioned on it. No one's ever been like, well, where's the study that proves that? And so you end up with this echo chamber of people. Like you mentioned earlier, like I didn't come up as a racer. Like I kind of came up outside of the industry and in some ways it was a blessing because I didn't come up in the echo chamber and I, I had the freedom to ask the question. Well, you know, all right, well, show me the study just because I want to see what's really going on here. And again, I wasn't trying to disprove clipless pedals. That's the irony is I know the story is like I fell over at a stop sign and I, I left, you know, went home that day crying, uh, determined to prove the clipless pedals suck and the flat pedals were better. And that, that was the beginning of my crusade. And that's what happened.
1: Yeah. And to be clear, you're not, you're not saying that people shouldn't ride clipless. You're just saying that, that the two are in a lot of ways equal or, or do you think one is better than the other?
0: I do think that, uh, that once well, again, better is contextual, right? right? It
1: depends. I mean, it's yes. in terms of like power transfer, um, maybe the two are, are about the same, would you say, or, or is one, does one have an advantage?
0: I would say that that, uh, they are very similar, that that any advantages or disadvantages are more probably more rider, more about the rider than the system. And and so, you know, that has to be taken into it. Because a lot of times when you're doing a test, like if you take someone who's only ridden clipless pedals and then you put them on flat pedals, that's not a fair test. Like, you know what I mean? If they don't produce as much power, like that's not a fair test. And, and so that's where you see a lot of stuff. They take clipless pedal riders and where you do see it. Again, like there's not a lot of these studies and they're not definitive. And there are studies and, and anecdotal evidence that definitely points in the other direction. I mean one is a guy named Sam Hill. You know what I mean? It's like if, if anyone has proven that flat pedals can, can perform just as well, it's him. And But uh, um, so what, what my – content? What, I guess what my beef is – Is that it's the lies and the myths and the half truths that are used to sell clipless pedals to people who don't know any better. When you tell someone that they need clipless pedals, because they're going to get more power and efficiency, or that they need to be able to pull up on the backstroke. It's not true. You know what I mean? Like you, you should. And so we, we, the, the industry stacks the deck in the favor of clipless pedals. And that's what I don't think is fair. Like, I think that people should be able to make their own decision. But let's tell them the truth. Like, what does, you know, what are the advantages of of clipless pedals? You know, there are studies that show that clipless pedals increase your risk of a major hip injury during a crash. Like, that's not just, uh, you know, people scaremongering. Like, there's actually three studies that somebody sent me the other day that all of them show that when you're clipped in, your odds of incurring a major hip injury are increased. I mean, it, it, so science even like backs up, like they're not, they're, there are pluses and minuses to both. So if there is no magical pedal stroke, like that's the thing that I feel clipless pedals are sold based on this magical pedal stroke. That's only achievable if you're clipped in.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And if you take away that magical pedal stroke and you tell people that like, no, 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 you can and should pedal the same way on flat pedals that you do on clipless pedals and that flat pedals will actually make you a better rider. They're going to force you to develop the best, most efficient pedal stroke. They're going to force you to develop the best, most efficient skills on your bike. They're going to make you a better rider. Then, you know, the discussion becomes different. And so that's really like what the point of the flat pedal revolution manifesto and a lot of the stuff that I try to talk about are about. But with that said, my own personal opinion, I, I think that, and this is where my pedal comes in. I don't think clipless pedals were ever better. I just think we had really crappy flat pedal design hmm. and that people were trying to solve the problem of bad flat pedals the wrong way. So your your average pedal, your, your average flat pedal – is too small it it is only large enough to support one end of the arch of your foot okay and so this creates a few problems you have an unstable arch now like the back of your your arch isn't supported by anything and so you have an unstable arch you you're also creating unbalanced forces going into the pedal the pedals wanting to roll forward now instead of just pressing straight down right and so these are problems So how can you solve this problem? Well, one of the ways to solve this problem is to put a stiff-soled shoe on you and strap your foot to the pedal. (laughs) That solves that problem, right? Well, it does, but it's not the only way to solve that problem. Another way to solve the problem is to extend the flat pedal so you support both ends of the arch. Now you've got a stabilized arch. So now you're able – your foot isn't flexing. Your ankle isn't flexing. You're not having to – you're not getting that flex. And you're uh, also now when you press down, you've got even forces going into both ends of the platform. This keeps it from rolling. I mean, if you ask an engineer, hey, you've got a, a platform that's centered on a rotating axis and you want to apply force into this platform, do you want to put pressure evenly on both ends or do you want to try to balance pressure in the center of this rotating platform? Like he's going to tell you, put it on both ends, dumbass. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> it's good, you know. You're going to. It's almost impossible to center it perfectly, and you're going to start creating tipping and rolling once it's off centered. Yeah. So the whole idea makes no sense from a, from a mechanical standpoint. So, but anyway, so now you've taken care of those two problems by stabili- stabilizing both ends of the arch, and you know, as well as just the the advantages you get because with the with stability at the back end of the arch, you can get pressure there, which allows you to get better recruitment of your hips, which also takes pressure off of the knees and the calf and the Achilles tendon. So you're, you're able to move better once your foot is in a better, more stable position. And so again, like my own personal opinion, I feel that a properly designed flat pedal can perform just as well as a clipless pedal in 99 point whatever percent of the time You know, there's always going to be that time where your foot may have slipped a little bit and it wouldn't have slipped or like the advantages of clipless pedals are that you can do anything and your foot stays attached to the pedal.
1: Yeah, that's, that's why I like them.
0: Well, it's also the disadvantage though, right? Because now you can do anything. Any pedal stroke will put power into the, into the, into the, the cranks. Any, any movement on the bike will get it to move but you're not getting that feedback that your body needs to learn how to do the things properly. Like, you know, clipless pedals are like taking a toddler and putting them in a walker. You know what I mean? Like you're not helping him walk, man. Right. Like he looks like he's walking, but you're not giving him the feedback that he needs to actually learn how to walk properly. And that's what happens when you take a new person and you put him in clipless pedals. Is you're taking that feedback that their body needs to learn how to pedal and move and do all of these things properly on their bike. And you're putting their feet in this foreign, unfamiliar environment. And it, it it just doesn't uh, um, it you know it doesn't work uh, out in the long run. So plus you know your body just can't move the way that it's designed to move on clipless pedals. Like the whole float idea, like that's you know any other condition like that's called ice. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like your foot is designed to be in contact with a solid surface. Like when you're I talk about this all like uh, to people all the time that when you, your grounds on when your foot's on the ground. Your, your foot's not moving just straight up and down. Like it's actually spiraling and rotating in and out of the ground, right? So if you did that on clipless pedals, you would unclip. Your foot can't move the way that it's designed to move. And so this is one of the reasons that you see people's knees caving in so much on, on clipless pedals on their bikes because they have to get this rotation from somewhere. They can't rotate through their foot because they would unclip, So they start rotating through their knee but, you know, your knee's not designed for that rotation. Now you've got forces running through the knees unevenly. So now you're causing problems there. So there's just, there's so many issues that get that get caused by uh, strapping your feet in that completely foreign and unnatural environment. And like I said, it's, it's really unnecessary because you can solve the problem by improving the design of the flat pedal.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And your, your catalyst pedal, we should mention too, that, um, foot position is a lot different when you're talking about clipless versus a flat pedal, right? When you're riding clipless, you're kind of more of your weight and your power is at the ball of your foot. Uh, Whereas when you're on a pedal, uh, a flat pedal, you're, you're actually more toward the arch, right? More toward the center of your foot.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Flat pedal. I mean, you, you know, foot position, you can use the same foot position on either system, but Clipless pedals are definitely designed with being on the ball of the foot in mind. And the more you move to the midfoot position, it actually makes it harder to unclip because you start to lose some of your lever that you need to, to unclip. So,
1: Or your shoe runs into your crank arm. That's what I found with some shoes that, that tried to put the cleat a little bit too far toward the middle.
0: Yeah. So they're not, they're not really designed uh, clipless pedal system and shoes are not designed for the midfoot position. They are designed with the ball of the foot position in mind. And so the flat pedals, what people quickly find is if you try to stay on the ball of the foot, it's really tough. Your foot keeps wanting to scoot forward. And again, it's because your foot knows better than you do. It knows where it wants to be. You keep forcing it into this position and it keeps moving. And then you're like, bad dog, go back to where you're <laughs> supposed to be. And then it moves and you're like bad dog and you just see it all the time. And eventually most flat pedal riders eventually just kind of give up and they just let their foot settle a little further forward, more towards the midfoot position than what they would on clipless pedals because they find that that's where their foot naturally wants to settle. And so, uh, but the problem is, is that without the full length of the, the pedal, like, you know, the catalyst pedal is designed with five inches of contact space, which you know, that's enough for you to connect the front end, front and back of the arch uh, for most riders. When you're able to get pressure on both ends of the arch, your arch wants support on one end. A a pedal that's too small, if you go to a true midfoot position, it's kind of just stuck in the middle of the arch and, and it doesn't have stability on either end and your arch is wrapping around it and it's not comfortable. So your foot's always gonna cheat to one end or the other because it's seeking at least one point of stability. But again, without having both ends stabilized, now you've got these, these uneven forces going into the pedals. You're not able to press down through the heel, which if, you, if you've ever been in the gym and had a trainer get get to you, like don't press through your toes, drive through your heels when you're doing your lower body exercises, it's because you need heel pressure to recruit your hips. Mm-hmm. And without heel pressure, you can't recruit your hips properly. Like this is why so many riders have knee problems because when you're on the ball of your foot, you can't recruit your hips. So you're not recruiting your hips. You're placing more stress on the knees. It's just basic like functional movement. It's how the body works. But that's, these are the things that aren't really thought about and discussed when it comes to pedals and foot position and things on the bike. It's The, the, the cycling industry has convinced everybody that riding a bike is quote-unquote different than anything else in the world. And it's not. It's not. All the same movement principles apply. We just have to look at how do we apply them to the bike. And, you know, so again, just, just real quick touching on the other problem that the, that people make is that they look at riding a bike and they think that it looks like running or walking. And so they think that, well, when I'm running or walking, I want to push through the ball of my foot, but on a bike, you're not going anywhere. The bike is carrying you through space, right? Mm -hmm. That's how you can have a stationary bike. So your foot doesn't actually come off of the pedals as you're pedaling. It stays in contact with the pedals the whole time. So your foot acts differently. If your foot doesn't come off of what it's on, you don't want to push through the ball of your foot. If it stays in contact with what it's on, you want to have a stable arch and drive through the whole foot. So this whole idea of you need to push through the ball of your foot to increase your agility and increase, you know, it's because it's how you run or walk and all of these things. They're, they're not the right analogies to apply to the situation. People are, are, uh, are, are, you know, not, not using the right, uh, um, yeah, examples to explain what you're trying to do. Cause it's not the same thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Well, yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. You have a lot of really interesting and different ways to approach this. I know, given our listeners a lot of food for thought. So thanks for joining us.
0: Yeah, no, no problem, Jeff. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, any time you want to uh, talk some training, brother, I'm I'm down to do it
1: right on. Well, you can get more information about James Wilson's strength training programs at bikejames.com and he's also got a podcast on there. So, if you want to get more wisdom from James, you, that's the place to do it. And as always, we'd love it if you would rate the Single Tracks podcast in your favorite podcast app so that others can find out about the show. So, we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Peace.